Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. Today I've got a very special guest for you, someone that's been very inspirational, someone that's very aspirational, but I'll start with her amazing and extensive bio. Um, We have Claire Warden with us today, the educational consultant who has developed her approach to nature pedagogy and experiential learning through a variety of experiences. Her experiences has taken her on a pathway that includes working in a variety of types of centres, advisory work and lecturing in further education. Claire is currently based in Scotland and that's where she's coming to us live via Zoom today, um, but frequently travels to Australia, United States and everywhere else. Claire is an author of many, many, many books founder of the International Association of Nature Pedagogy, which is phenomenal. Um, and what I love about Claire, she's a real practitioner. She's not just being theoretical about this. She has her own centre in Scotland and loves on people of her community. She loves loose parts. She loves risk. And someone to, I aspire to be more like and gives me a huge amount of motivation by seeing how much can be achieved by just one person. When you delve into it, you're like, how many people are Claire Warden? But thank you so much for being with us today, Claire. That's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Let's jump straight to it. The question we ask all our guests to get nostalgic, to reminisce and activate our hearts. Where did you like to play as a child? Um, Down by the compost heap. Um, so in my in the garden of where we lived, there was kind of a screening hedge and then there was um, a greenhouse to the side and, and that's where the compost heap was really. Um, and down there, it was completely free. You had a sense of doing what you liked, uh, using what you wanted. And so I remember making a petal perfume factory down there, um, going around and collecting all the half dead uh, flower heads and taking them down there and finding old tin cans and using a plank for the shelf. So, so for me, it was a place of just joyous freedom. Um, yeah, so, so down there, I would say, was my, was my real haven. Um, yeah, that's the one I'll go for, I think. There are many, but that's the one that, that really sticks in my mind. And they're the most valuable ones, the ones that get sticky. Um, and how do you think that experience impacts your work today? Oh, massively. I mean, I, I think... Um, I think we're all influenced, obviously, by the context yeah. in which we grow up. And mine was with my mum, obviously. And um, I, I think back now when people ask me about the adult role, and I, I really visualised my mum because, you know, here comes her little daughter who takes off every flower head off these beautiful bushes. And and rather than telling me off, said, oh, you know, where are you planning to do with those? And so we headed off down into the my compost heap um, and um, and started to make petal perfume together. And, and rather than telling me how to do it, 
she was very good at the conversation. She would be asking me, you know, who's it for? And at that point, I was really into Cindy, who wasn't Barbie, by the way. She was much more rugged. Um, and so I used to make her perfume. And then mum would leave me alone. And then she'd come back and she'd give me a couple of little plastic bottles she'd found. And then she'd go away and come back with a flower. And, and so when I think about our adult role now, when we're doing any form of education, it's that, you know, coming in with that light touch, walking alongside the child, stepping back, allowing them the space and the freedom. And, and that's absolutely inspired by my mother and my petal perfume shop. And that's evident that relationship rings true and that recreation in, in all your work and that importance of that social role as from a parent as well. Um, how does that pair up? And let's take a step back for the listeners that aren't familiar with nature pedagogy. I've heard you give mm -hmm. some amazing definitions, far more articulate than I can, my ramblings ever are. So could you define that for our listeners? Certainly. So, so what happens in terms of outdoor learning is that um, people become very attached to a certain model, what I would say mm. a model of delivery of outdoors, whether it's walking in the park or bush kindy or forest school, whatever these things are. Yeah. What's happened is we've started to separate ourselves for identity. And when that happens, you actually dissipate the power. So we're about agency as a profession. So for me, it was about digging below all of the models that exist around the world and going right underneath them um, to the interconnectedness of them, to the similarities that are there. That's nature pedagogy. So nature pedagogy is where you put the heart of, put the natural world at the heart of your practice. It means that you look at spaces that are inside buildings, outside buildings, yeah. um, but also spaces beyond where it's nature on nature's own terms. And the second meaning of it really was the one that I explored more in my PhD, which was around um, inside as being self, inside as being soul, outside as being out in relationship with others and beyond in terms of us as a global society. So that phrase can either be taken very literally to be location of outdoor learning, yeah. or it can be um, much deeper, which is to understand our need and um, relationship with the, with the rest of the natural world. Yeah, and that's something that rings very true to my experience. And when I was working with children, um, I jumped into the sector from a background of doing like edible landscapes and gardens and teaching families at community gardens and introduction to gardening courses. Um, and then I went to teach children and it was very, okay, we're going to go do composting today. We're going to go <laughs> and do these things. And I was so excited, but the children would look at me like, oh, this crazy guy, super <laughs> excited again. Um, but breaking it down, I realized and something to explore, I need to focus on the social practice of the children's experience in that space first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And the innate response was mm -hmm. to care for the space that cares for them. And get rid of the yeah. branding yeah. of these yes. ideologies. Yeah. And um, oh, now, now when I go into centres and um, have these discussions, I just don't brand anything. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's that's right, isn't it? And I'm like completely good. Well, it comes from a place of I was going in and trying to teach different, all these different types of things that all related, like Montessori relates to yeah. Reggio yeah. and all of these things. But the minute yeah. I mentioned a brand, People would be like, it's not my brand. <laughs> I won't accept That's it. Exactly. There you go. That's the silo mentality. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then what yeah, I love yeah. about the nature pedagogy is how 
the ecology of nature pedagogy works. It's all intertwined. It's all complementary. And it's that child experience at the centre. I'd ask you to, for a moment, challenge or give feedback on an idea that I've been exploring. How do Mm -hmm. I put it? Um, So I went to Finland and I did a talk on you can't have environmental sustainability with an environmental practice. It needs to be a social Mm -hmm. practice first and foremost. And Mm -hmm. our end goal as educators um, is to have have children identify as environment, as nature, Mm -hmm. would be Mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, Based on your PhD and all that social and nature, how does that play into that? Um, Absolutely plays into it. um, So for me, we are completely all interconnected. And I agree with you entirely is that sometimes sustainability is talked about as a as if we're othering the natural world. Mm. And when you other the natural world, um, it means that actually you're not seeing it as something that's directly connected to yourself. So you see yourself as the protector of it. Well, that's great, but actually one could argue that the natural world is actually our protector as much as we are it. Um, that you see yourself as the one who can control it. So you've got like a dominion over the natural world. Well, that's not sustainable either. So when you dig down into what relationship with nature is it's about that interconnectedness and it's only when you get balance for me that we'll really start to understand the idea of sustainability and it's a tricky one because often um, when I talk about outdoor learning or nature-based learning people oh yeah you're in the sustainability group I was like well we should all be in that group that's not one that you should choose to join but but um, I think one of the things we've got to ask ourselves is is it about education for sustainability Is it actually about sustainable education or is it actually just about trying to find this idea of balance and sustaining a human population on a planet? Because, you know, in that bigger frame, not be too fatalistic about it, the health's not, the earth's not quite so healthy at the moment. It's in a place of change. And I think sometimes adults or humans feel that they can control that, whereas If you're coming from that relationship sense, you realize that, as we've seen through the pandemic, we're nothing on the speck of the earth, actually, because, you know, this smallest thing, this virus could bring us to our knees. So so actually through this pandemic, it's actually been really interesting to look at the social response to the natural world. Some people absolutely hate it because they blame it for it. Other people have said it's our our salvation. It's our solution. Um, and other people have got a new respect for it, which is my glimmer of hope when I think about moving forward in terms of sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And um, from like Adam Bainstock, he's la- launched a wing of his company <laughs> of like outdoor classrooms now, which is phenomenal. And we are seeing like I'm just seeing families in the neighbourhood. We back onto bushland, and the people going for bushwalks is like more than it's ever been. Um, we were talking before the podcast started about some amazing developments you've seen personally through your centre with the community engagement. Could you share that story with our guests? Sure, absolutely. So um, I think there are um, moments in your life to what Caputo, as a researcher, says are rifts in thinking. And so we were sitting there, the news had come of the lockdown in Scotland and um, you're faced with a crisis. So you think, what can I do? Have we got something to offer? So we decided to run um, a virtual nature school 
at the same time as opening a hub. And so the hub has been fantastic because then we've got children on site who are from two to 11 years old. Um, and it's it's wonderful in these moments because you you have children who you've never met before and instantly you can see that the natural world is a different point of, um, it has a different soundscape to it. So we had children coming in 10, 11 years old who were very aware of the news and about everything going on on the planet. And so for us, we made a very conscious decision that their soundscape would not be one of pandemic, virus, and all of those things. They needed a space where they could hear birdsong, where they could just hear laughter. So the, the hub itself was, was brilliant, really enjoyed that. And so out of that, that group of children then said, you know what, my friend's at home, um, I miss him. And so we said, well, all right, well, let's, let's contact them. So we set up the virtual nature school. And, um, and so it meant our little group of children at the hub were talking to children all over the country um, at that point, now all over the world. Um, and so they would just chat about things. I would put in a little provocation. So um, we did something on making boats. Um, but as you know, with any inquiry, it goes off in a million directions. And so, you know, they, what was lovely was that you saw children using the technology to build relationship. It wasn't that we had hours and hours in front of the screen. We had a maximum of like 40 minutes on a screen a day. But so they met in the morning, which is kind of that ritual, isn't it? It's the ceremony, it's the routine that many of them were missing. And then the, the instruction was, right, come on, let's go outside. And so there's the, you know, the screaming, yeah, outside, outside, we do all that. And then we meet again back online at lunchtime and we chat. So we eat lunch together. That's the whole point. So yeah. we have lunch together. There's an eating community there. And then we share what we've been doing. And um, again, and it was so successful. Yeah, the government took it and uh, ran with it. So now... Um, all the films, not the main project, but all the films are up on um, the YouTube channel, Virtual Nature School, for a little plug. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's all free. Yep. So go and enjoy them. And we'll put the um, yeah. we'll put that address in the show notes. So just scroll down, oh, finish nice. listening, and and go straight to it. Amazing resource. What I love about that is your foresight not to be, you know, stuck in your silo of like you know nature yeah. and demonizing screens like we see so often. Um, you know, screens are bad, get everyone outside, but you've embraced the screen to leverage on the resource and experience you want. Um, how was that perceived and taken up from those people that are more rigid? <laughs> what was that experience like when you told everyone, we're going to do a virtual nature school? Well, you know, those people who know me know my heart. Yeah. And so they know where I'm coming from. And so they were massively supportive. And I thank those people. Um, and then there were those people who just want to find something to bring you down. So and they're always going to do that, whether yeah. it's you've written a book or something else. So they were the moaners. Yeah. And then, you know, then you had that group of people who sat on the fence. And, and so in America at the moment, they're talking about kindergarten children going on a virtual school. And that's been quite negatively received. But it's it's been received negatively, not because of the technology, but the fact that the child's supposed to be on the screen for five hours or whatever. Yeah. So, so using technology um, is, is really important for me because, you know, we use digital microscopes and we're chatting over at the internet. Yeah. And so our children will need to have to learn the balance of all of that. Um, so, yeah, we've had varying responses. Those people who know me have said very positive. There were a couple of people who, you know, especially in the INAP group and the Facebook group, they'll say, oh, you know, is that an oxymoron? So, well, yeah, but you know what? I talk about the virtual nature school 
and then you start to examine the word virtual and then you start to take yourself off on a little channel of thinking into the unobservable and then you get into the well actually what's wrong with us talking about you know being in a virtual space because there's so much goes on in the natural world that is unobservable so yeah it was a really interesting conversation with some people on the whole massively supportive and it's interesting to see that as the pandemic is not really slowed down but will not be stopping uh, for a while yet people who were very cynical of the use of technology have now said actually maybe you're right maybe we'll do a bit of this now then so it's how you use it then. yeah yeah it's how you use it lucas yeah. And you mentioned there, and we have a lot of listeners that are advocates and they might come up against those hurdles of the people being a bit negative about practices or even about the practice of nature and embracing risk. Yep. So yep. in your experience, how do you overcome those personally? Some tips for our listeners. <laughs> Smile and wave. Um, <laughs> a lot of it is about your inner resilience. Yeah. is about you know giving yourself the research the the language of conversion as I call it because you need to really be able to say and justify why you think that it would be lovely if everyone just expect accepted our thoughts wouldn't it but often we're pushed to say where's your evidence so yeah. ask the questions of well where's the evidence that inside is better because there's very little research to say that inside is better ask the question of all right so you're very risk averse but we should be thinking about risk in terms of not just physical, which is where everyone focuses, yeah. but on intellectual risk taking. So I'd like you to do a risk assessment on a monumentally boring worksheet. And <laughs> what about social risk taking and how children need each other to be able to, to have a society? What about the emotional risk taking where actually, you know, again, do me a risk assessment on the fact that you're wrapping your child in cotton wool or you're not allowing them adventure. Yeah. Because when you do that process and you changed it from being physical harm to the whole thing about who you are as a human, it changes people's perceptions of it. And then they're like, all oh, right, you say I'm actually doing harm by making this three-year-old sit down and do a worksheet for two hours. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. And actually, if you were to look at the long-term effect of all of that, it's extreme as opposed to the language around, you know, the odd bruise. And obviously, we've got to be mindful, but the odd bruise and changing the language of that to be a medallion of adventure, yeah. that changes it from being a tragedy, from being yeah. to one of, this is a good thing, to be someone pushing myself at the forefront of what I do. Yeah, I asked um, educators to do a injury report with the same passion they do as a learning story. <laughs> <laughs> with the indeed, same wording. indeed. Jack yeah, was sensory, yeah, yeah. exploring his sensory <laughs> skills when this happened. And his learning outcomes. It's just a different framing. Yeah, and I also want to, and just to ask educators, don't tell parents it's because they really like it. <laughs> so the parent goes, yeah, <laughs> yes. they like staying up late and not eating their dinner. What's your point? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for absolutely. the research as well. Um, talking about your research, could you give us an overview and how that contributed to you founding the International Association for Nature Pedagogy and how that relate, how that came to life? Yeah, sure. Um, all right, so, so the, the, um, the PhD title is The Creation and Theorisation of a Nature Pedagogy. Mm -mm -mm. And it actually came about because I had been really struggling to find... 
um, a resonance within myself as to my belief structure and what I what I really thought was going on. And so much of the Western paradigm of what outdoor learning is, is us as a consumer, us as a um, having dominion over the natural world. And that just wasn't me at all. And I was fortunate um, to be asked to go to the uh, to state in the Rawa community in Western Australia, very remote Aboriginal community and um, honoured to be there. But when you're there, you, you in that kind of remote space, you and talking to elders, you begin to realise that actually a lot of what I was resonating with was ancient wisdom, was a wisdom of people who have been on the land and with the land um, forever. So that really triggered me to go away and do some more research around what we mean by the unobservable, what we mean by living and non-living, what impact that has when you put that in practice. Because, you know, here I was working in Scotland with a with a setting. And so the research actually pushed the frontier of using film. Um, we used audio. Um, we did um, what we call the makings. And so the making was taken um, the idea of um, hylomorphic learning. So when you're using your hands, your hands and your brain connect, but it's not as simple as going, oh, it's hands-on learning. What you're actually doing is creating these neural pathways backwards and forwards, which I would suggest um, give us this sense of being. And so um, one of the things that we did then was, okay, let's, I went to the team at Dog Clone and said, what do you want to make? And they said, well, um, we'd like to make a piece of tartan, a plaid cloth to show people what we really believe here. And I was like, oh, crikey, I can't weave that well. I'm not sure I can get tartan. But but when you drilled it back, what we did then was we went around the fields here and we collected the wool. Um, we went around the fields here and we collected the different plants that gave us the dyes. And so what you end up with is, is a piece of um, continuous plaid which has made from the wool and the plants of the land in which we're working. It's the colors of the land because that's the plants that we've got here. So through that process, you're having conversation with the team as, as a form of research. And so we, it, I was filming it all. And so what came out of it was a repetition of keywords. So it was things like soul, family, community, um, resonance, um, spirit, so these words started coming up and I was like, this is really interesting for me because not once have you said, there's a mud kitchen, there's the sand pit, that's where the climbing tree is. Um, and they were like, well, no, because that's not really it, Claire. That's that's just where it happens. It's That's it. And so there was lots of the it, it's mm. it happening. So yeah, that's what I tried to do was to unpick the it. Um, what was this phenomena that takes place when children are in the natural world? Um, and then came up with 10 principles, really, or 10 values that seem to be guiding the practice here um, at Ocklone. And as I've shared those, lots of people now are saying, actually, yeah, we need this because we were really standing away from, from actually understanding this emotional uh, connection children have to the natural world. Yeah. So that was the PhD. Um, that's lots of years of my life there. And um and then the other bit that happened was that um, I was I was exploring the idea. This is a bit deep. Anyway, here we go. Um, I was good. talking. I was exploring the idea of relationship and using um, there's a couple of guys, Delus and Delagati. Um, they were looking at this idea of rhizomatic thinking, which means that we're all connected like a rhizome. 
And I was saying, actually, I, I don't, I'm not that linear. So that's why my analogy went more towards uh, exploring plant root systems. And so a normal piece of grass has a dendritic root. So it's like this, or trees of trees of knowledge, they're always used. I'm like, nah, that's not it. There is no tree of knowledge where one person's at the top and someone's at the bottom. There's an interconnectedness. And so then I struck on um, the mycelium beneath um, fungus, beneath mushrooms, really. And that the whole thing about that mycelium is it gives and takes that it's there's no one point of knowing. There are many aspects in there that give and take, as we know now from the, the way that forests and trees look after each other. The same thing is true of much of that underground world that none of us ever know about. So when we came to set up an organization of practitioners, I spoke to lots of good friends around the world and said, look, I know this sounds a bit wacky, but I really want to get into the idea of it being more like a mycelium. So we'll have people all over. So rather than it being a centralized system, which would be dendritic, it's actually going to be about everybody putting energy in together. And then by doing that, you then start to really grow it. And, and so that's really what happened. People got more and more involved in it. People gave time to it. Um, we've um, It's had a little bit of a back burner at the moment just because of the pandemic, but the Facebook group is incredibly active. And so we do like um, a conference, an online conference every year, and people come and share and things like that. But it's all about um, nature pedagogy. It's all about bringing us together as a global society to find as many different ways of connecting to the natural world as we can. So it's not one model, it's many models coming together. So yeah, it's based on mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, it just blows my mind how these links happen between not just nature, but with people. Um, and mm -hmm. I just wanna honor you and because I just love so much that, yes, you're very academic, but it comes from with such basis and wholeheartedness in emotion and it comes from a place of love and you don't get that much and it just resonates with me so and, and and i'm just so excited right now and i was just recently i've been talking to people about trees that when they have enough abundance within them within themselves they'll actually yep. push their overflow back into these ecosystems yeah. that are around them so they flourish and then when they back down so let's start considering what is our overflow and what's in our environment that help us thrive i did a talk at a school like two weeks ago and that was on my i just had it in my heart and i, I just agree. said to them i said this is about a tree right and <laughs> the tree grows the tree knows how to grow it has everything it can to grow and we don't have to do the growing for the tree. All we have to do is create a beautiful environment to feed the tree and the tree will do the rest. So that's what I want to do. Yeah. Cause this was a talk about developing their play environment. And I said, yeah, it's just absolutely. about what, what are we going to give them to thrive so they can create it. Mm. So there was a lovely picture that um, I had of a tree growing up and we were talking about canopy space and, and I was saying, but you know, when you take photographs up, Mm. Um, of tree canopies. It's fascinating that often you'll see that little line of clear sky from yeah. one canopy between one canopy and the other. Um, and and so I was like, look at that. They're not fighting each other. They're not. I mean, some plants do, but but this wasn't. It was about everybody winning. And as that for me is one of the most amazing things about trees. And the last conference we did actually with the INAP, 
um, uh, last year, I think it was, um, was on trees. And so there were some people who were coming to a tree with a very objective view of, you know, this is what the tree provides. Mm. And then I was talking about the same stuff that you were just then talking about, well, actually, as a symbolism for what we are, let's talk about this. So um, it's, I, yeah, I love trees. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I'm it's a, a synergistic a relationship. It's, yeah, it's, it's just great. They've got so much to teach us. And yet a lot of people just put them aside as being a source of timber. And you're like, there's way more to yeah. this. You just don't realize it yet. But yeah. yeah, I see big trees. and I think there's more wisdom in that tree than, uh-huh. than, than, uh-huh. than there is in continents, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow. And it not only when, the syner- when we take that synergistic relationship, from a tree and transfer that over to the relationship of the adult role in the child's experience mm-hmm. and the child's play. It's, mm. it's, you share that how important it is. So maybe you could define for us why that relationship is so important, not to drag the child from the front, but like you mentioned earlier, stand beside them, don't grow for mm. them, don't climb the tree for them, so if you could unpack that for me, that would yeah, be great. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, that's it's almost like um, education by voyeurism when, when I see people do that. And like that, you know, I've been to settings where, you know, the practitioner in the hope to stimulate motivation has dressed up like a fairy and run about. And, and I'm like, you know, the, the wings of that fairy belong to the, the actual child that you're working with. So him looking at you and and looking at you enjoying yourself isn't necessarily going to invite that young child to come into that play. Anyway, let's go on to another bit. So one of the things about the adult role for me is is about, I suppose, um, the element of power. And I think one of the, you know, the word we should be talking about is empowerment, is agency. These are really strong words, I think, because if as an adult you believe that... um, you know, you've got to fill the empty vessel that is the child, that actually there's a naivety in children. They don't know, they can't control themselves, so I'll do it for them. If that's your ontology, if that's your worldview, then what happens is that actually you create a system that perpetuates that. Mm. So you do things for children, you give them what they need. And so it just keeps that cycle, if you like, going within that group of adults. And and it's another point along a continuum You've got a different viewpoint. And so the viewpoint of of this adult might be that actually children are agentic. They are able to make decisions themselves. They are able to um, control, self-regulate if they're given the opportunity to do so. They should be consulted. They should be um, empowered to feel the result of some of their decisions. And that means that, you know, often I'll talk a lot about our need to prevent children's failure and and i'm like well if you do that you've actually stopped that feedback loop yeah so for me sitting at that end of the spectrum which is more about agency means that you walk alongside the child that you actually if you want to make a little clay animal then you make the clay animal but it's your animal don't pretend that it's a child's animal because it's not (laughs) you so do your own clay animal and the child will come alongside you and they'll be inspired by your handling of the clay. So this duality, this walking alongside, and many theorists have talked about it, you know, the apprenticeship approach, Frobelian thinking, 
they all have links to some of this work, I think. Um, and we are influenced by some of those people. I think for me, one of the lovely things is we've just brought out a new document in Scotland um, and it's, it talks a lot about being kind. So one of the things that I find both sad and rewarding about that moment is that, you know, why do we have to write in a document to be kind to children? That saddens me a little. You'd yeah. think that would be an accepted thing, wouldn't you? And then the good thing about it is that we've realised that actually being kind being truly heart-centric, being somebody who has an authenticity around them, um, that they are truly interested in what children are talking about and value their words, value their voice. Those are the things that really matter, I think, to young children in terms of the adult role. And then in the form of modelling that compassion and the ch child learning mm -hmm. through you equally. Mm -hmm. And... I'd, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Without being think, dominant, um, of course, not being like learn, yeah. do do what I do what I do, not as I say, <laughs> type yeah. of. There's this, yeah. There's a there's a big debate here at the moment with the some of the different models that are coming in around Volk kindergartens, like um, Bush Kindy and yeah. some of the Nature Kindergarten models and things like that, Forest Kindergartens, because in their route they come from Germany. Mm the one I visited, and the adult was very stand back. So the adult was very passive in that environment. Um, and so then everybody's going, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be passive. I'm just going to stand right back and I might look on. Great, absolutely, I'll have these skills. But I've always worked in areas of high deprivation where actually there's a conscious decision to have interaction with children to stimulate language, to stimulate communication. So, so you have to examine, I think, and be critical of all of these different pieces of advice about your place, mm. um, your needs, your family's needs and things like that. And it's a reflective of, so what I hear is there is like being authentic to your community mm -hmm. and what's relevant there. Mm. Not saying this is not being stuck in your silo. We do bush kindy and this is how the program runs um, and mm -hmm. letting the child have that ownership over the space. Mm -hmm. But you know, well, one could argue, or one, yeah, I could argue that um, children should have that sense of empowerment if you're in an urban nature play area just outside your own building. You know, so so if you believe in empowerment, then there should be empowerment inside your building, outside and beyond. So so it's for me, it's really important that we spend time to drill down into the values that drive us as a profession. Yeah. Um, and when you've got those values set, um, and they need to be personal to the team, um, before somebody says, what are the values? Um, they've got to be values that are driving you as a group. Then then they guide your practice, I think, in that way yeah, yeah. that you're talking how, about. How do you, if you want to define and come up with those values that drive you, what would be some of your tips to get there? Um. I think conversation as a group of adults, and we don't have much time for dialogue, to be honest. Um, often our lives are very, very busy. We, as I said in that research, um, we spent a long time, actually, probably almost a year, getting to the point where we were really happy with the different values that we'd come up with. Um, I think often what happens is that in a leadership position, we know our vision for our early years environment or our education environment. 
And you do need leadership within this space. But it's also very important that we don't just say, right, okay, these are the 10 values. What, what are the 10 values? Repeat after me what the 10 yeah. values are. Because they're not owned. So they're not embedded in the people that you're working with. So for me, it's about conversation. It's about having those conversations outside. If you're talking about the natural world, then that's where your training should be. Um, it's about offering um, almost little bites of information to get people talking. So, so do go to the research. Be controversial about what you're putting in front of your staff because in those moments, as I said earlier on, these, these rifts in thinking, these moments of tension can often give us the greatest insights into the work that we do. So, so don't be scared of stepping into that. Be, be brave as the leader. Be brave as the innovator. Um, and you'll find that if you stand up and say, this is what I believe, what do you believe? I think that gives you that really strong professional relationship. Yeah, and there's strength in hardship. And, yep. and there's that additional accomplishment when you do actually get through it and overcome it. And yep. through that, I just think it's like, your scope is so wide and every time there's a discussion or even conflict, it narrows that hallway just a little bit. So you're both walking side by side and not in different directions yep. each time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the question I'm often asked is, you know, what do you do with the adult who won't go out and what do you do with the adult and, you know, who doesn't like outdoor learning? And, and I'm like, well, well, if they're, if they're showing and exhibiting that behavior in relation to outdoors, they're, they're not in a happy place. And then, so they're probably exhibiting that behavior inside, but we're just not seeing it yeah. quite as clearly. So it, it's so for some people, and I have to acknowledge this, some people, they are very threatened as adults by the natural world. Um, there are lots of people out there who have got biophobia, who have an absolute dislike and fear of the natural world. And so, you know, we get a bit purist about all of this. And, and so... I was talking to a group of people who were doing outdoor nurseries and lovely, absolutely passionate about it. But but there was this sense of, oh, you know, and we're not going to give them shelter and, you know, they're three and, and they're going to be out in the storms. And I'm like, this is not survivor child. We don't have to push children to to become Ray Mears or some great adventurer. This could be done in a, in a holding vegetables in a kitchen. It's not something that, you know, has to be so extreme. Um, and I think, and that's the bit we need to be a bit more accepting and a bit more generous about is to say everybody's doing what they can to create this integrated patchwork of stuff for children and families. And yeah, we do what we can. And if that effort is there, then then that's it. Fabulous. Yeah. Do what you can in the how space you, you are. How important is it for the child to be intrinsically motivated in their play? I would say, well, I, I think play play for me is self-driven anyway. So yeah. so if they're playing, they are self-driven. Yeah. Um, the, the question that sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, they um, they don't want to go out. Children don't like going outside. <laughs> and I'm like, they don't like going outside, really? And they're like, no, they don't like going outside. So I said, well, here's the thing. I didn't know I loved Japanese food until someone took me to a Japanese restaurant and talked to me about the food and helped me see the glory of it. So, so some children don't always have the motivation to come running up and say, well, I want to go outside because they've not had the embedded experiences to that point to help them understand that space. So, so some children I work with, it's about exposed, it's about um, 
uh, suppose desensitization it's about helping them go out for a little bit it's about putting the flowers on the table it's about chopping up the vegetables and all of that is nature as well of course playing in the water tray but the water tray moves so so for some children we have to help them along that journey to help them feel the joy and wonder of it but but I think you also have to understand that awe the root emotion of awe is actually repulsion is is fear and and so when people look at um you know a writhing mass of worms there's that sense of semi repulsion and weird fascination with it so yeah obviously we want children to be motivated and driven and I think most of them are but occasionally we need to understand there are children who will need a little bit of help along the way to really yeah, yeah unfold the glory of it all yeah mm. I liken it to relationships and no one starts off with, with having that best friend it was awkward at the start. Yeah. There was uncertainty. You had to kind of get to know each other and know the parameters in which you work. Um, there was conflict. Yeah. <laughs> there was misunderstandings. <laughs> there was uncertainty. But in the end, there's love, there's respect. And it's that relationship with nature that we need to foster. Yeah, absolutely great. That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in recent times, and I love this term you came up with, there's a mass processing of nature into classrooms, into schools, into playgrounds. And playgrounds is something you're passionate about as well. Um, how do we overcome that? And especially me being a playground designer and builder and being in that realm, how do we overcome or avoid falling in the trap of just processing nature? We see it time and time again. I see a nature playground and they've got rubber softball with logs sticking out of it. And now all of a sudden it's a natural playground. It drives me mental. But how do we educate? How do we advocate for authentic experiences in these necessary built environments? Mm. In terms of the landscape, I think, you know, one of the, the, the there are lots of different views, aren't there, in terms of what drives the landscape design. Mm. So, so years and years ago, 10 years ago, um, we all like the idea here in the UK, certainly of areas. And so yeah. this is my sand area. This is going to be my technology zone. This is my book corner. And so we really, what we did was that we looked at the inside environment, which was all done in bays and organized areas. And then we took that same model and put it outside in terms of our landscape design. All right. Now, one of the things that we're saying about the natural world is its integration, is its flow, is its flux, is its constant variability. So why then are we thinking that in the natural world especially, that we need to have a space for reading to take place? Shouldn't reading happen everywhere? Mm. Um, why have we got a space that's just for water? Shouldn't water be a trickling stream through the middle of design that, and it could be the rain falling at different times of the year? So for me, I suppose I've moved in my perception of that processing into the idea of an integrated space, an integrated design that is more reflective of the interconnectedness of the natural world. So when you look at some of the models like the, the Nature Banahaga and things like this, you know, they're going from an environment out to a space beyond the gate, as we call it. And when you go beyond the gate, there's no area for play that says, you know, that's the sand, that's the tree. That They don't do that. Children use it in a very holistic way. So there's been a, a real impact, I think, in landscape design, which says, I'm going to create you a stunning natural environment. 
is what I'm going to do. And children will play in it. And there will be sand. There will be these elements. So we will have um, malleability. So we'll get some clays in there. We will have the sands. Um, we will have some water flow. There will be shade. And so you can look at those aspects of landscape design in a more integrated way. And then the way I suppose that I'm now moving forward and it is, is really to ask people to talk to me about behaviours. What are the behaviours that you want in this space to move people away from saying, I want a mud kitchen, I want a sand tray, I want... Da, 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 da. And that's great as a starting point and that helps people scaffold it, but we must get beyond that to the idea of behaviours. So I want settlement. All right, you want settlement, great. What would settlement look like? Well, it might be a ring of logs. It might be... Um, a stone underneath a tree. It might be um, a place that's got two or three little trees in a sem in an arc that they can settle into that. So settlement, aspect, prospect, going up something to look out. Prospects are hugely important for children. Reorientation, so somewhere where you can hang to look at the world in a different way. So these, to me, are more useful when I'm looking at landscape design, the, the behaviours I want from children or people think they want from children. Children being children will always change it. But um, And that's the thing, isn't it? It should be you know, done with them. It, if we consult them, they'll tell us what they want. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's moving beyond the adult branding of it as well. But what I have to try mm -hmm. very intentionally to do is not ask children what do they want in their playground because their association to a playground is a slide, a trampoline, yes. a swing, and these post and yes. platform transition majority experiences where it's climb here, slide here, have fun. Yep. And then, yeah. so what I ask the children, what's your favorite thing for your friend to do? What do they like mm -hmm. doing in this space? Um, where do you like to be? And bringing it back to not so much the doing, but the being. And it's so reassuring Absolutely. for someone of your wisdom to go into that <laughs> realm. And I'm like, relieved I'm on the right track here. Um, I brand it as, um, okay, what, what character do you want these children to develop? Mm -hmm. And come up with that first and foremost. And we can worry about regulations and all that boring stuff <laughs> later. Don't worry, anyone mm -hmm. listening, we're still complying. Don't, don't freak out. Um, yeah, absolutely. But it's about that ca character and development of the child first, not learning outcomes, but mm -hmm. the development of that child first and foremost. How do we educate on the importance of an authentic natural experience? Because, you know, for so many families, adventuring out into the wilderness or into nature is as realistic as going to Mars so how do we mm -hmm. educate and come from a place of love to support people for their children to flourish? Mm -hmm. I think um, for me, it's about looking at the natural world um, in its smallest form. So what's the, the minimal amount that, that you could really touch? And so for me, that would be a leaf, a blade of grass. So if that child is working with me and, or with their parents or whoever they're with and they're outside and they pick up a blade of grass, then for me, that's it. We've got it there in that blade of grass because the blade of grass presents flexibility. I, we can use it to point. We can wave with it. We can dance with it. And so lots of people are talking about things like play affordance, loose parts. Um, but the theory of loose parts, which actually came from Gibson, um, 
was about these the infinite variability and complexity of the natural world. That's what he was actually about. It's been a little bit changed now in the in the press, but but when you look at the high play affordance of all these little tiny elements of the natural world, that's really what both Nicholson and Gibson were both talking about. So then you say, all right, if my minimal, if the smallest thing I can provide is a leaf, then how can I expand on that? Well, you you bring notice to the variety of leaves. So there isn't one type of leaf. We then look at another type of leaf. And so before you know it, you've had a really authentic experience with young children, but you've just been looking at the simple materials of the leaf, um, but they they hold such complex learning. So simple materials, complex learning. That means that you you follow that child to find where is their first little point of contact. Is it a dandelion? Is it a stone? Is it their shadow on the pavement? And once you've got that frisson, once you've got that moment, then what you do is use that as the foundation for us to then take off from. And so that's why really, you know, the the work around documentation on floor books, the work around children's voices is so vital in all of this. So for me, authenticity comes from fascination, comes from interest, comes from engagement. And then when I observe that engagement in, with young children, then I can, you know, um, nourish it, I suppose, and, and, and help that to be the thing that drives us, the, help, the thing that actually guides us on our inquiry line. Yeah, and that reminds me of something I heard you once say um, about the importance of a child questioning where they belong mm -hmm. in space or their relationship mm -hmm. with their surroundings. <laughs> so maybe you could unpack the importance of that question of where I am in space for our listeners. Certainly. I think, um, I think we underestimate children all the time. And I think children have a real intuitive sense about who they are, about um, what they bring. And, and so we really are about unfolding some of that. And I, I remember having this wonderful conversation about, um, we, we use these things called talking tubs, which are provocation boxes, if you like. And so somebody had pulled one together on Scotland. And um, so I was sitting in and, and the session, and so she had the children in a group, and she said, so we're going to be doing Scotland. I was like, okay, then let's see what this is. So she pulls out this um, model of the Loch Ness Monster and uh, the children are all sitting there. So she holds up the object in her hand and she turned to the first child and she said, what's this? And the boy went, he's a monster. And then she turned to the next child and said, what's this? And he said, he just told you it's a monster. And then goes to the third child and says, what's this? And then the third child looks at the other two with this quizzical look to say, is she just does she not hear in us? <laughs> so he looks at me and it's a monster. Like this. So so often what we get into in this sense of, you know, is their their understanding of a sense of place in Scotland has nothing to do with a monster. But we also try and put on this very reductionist, stereotypical view of the land we live on. The, the plants and animals that are here that we share the planet with. And so, you know, when I talk about children's sense of place, I think they they have a real understanding of it, but their sense of place of Scotland is probably the joy of rain or the midges that we're bitten by. And so reframing us ourselves and saying, actually, what is the essence of this thing? What is the thing that resonates with the children that I'm working with? 
And so when I talk to people about landscape design, again, I'm like, okay, what is there within your outdoor area or inside or, or beyond? But what is there in your outdoor area that is really connects to me as a child about my sense of place, who I am? So you find that people will, will do gorgeous, um, lovely nature-based environments and they're, they're full of plants. And I'm like, yeah, but I actually live in a, in a high-rise block of flats. I only have a window box. Um, I play street games with my mates. And so you think, all right, what is the sense of place for the children in this setting is that they need a window box because then what they do is they you can set them up like um, on the whether it's a cabin or a little hut or whatever it might be, so that they are then able to replicate the play of the home, their sense of place in their community, in your outdoor play area. So one um, project I really enjoyed was in Glasgow, and um, we talked to children about street games. And so we have a game here called Kirby, where you throw the ball and it goes down the kind of the edge of the pavement and then you have to catch it again. And um, and so I was talking to these children about it, and I was like, oh, so do you remember Kirby's? Oh, yeah. And um, we play Peavers, Hopscotch here a lot. Again, that's another traditional game. So, yeah, but we've got nowhere to play that here. And I was like, oh, why are we not doing this? So all we did was put in a little round area with a bit of pavement in the middle and a Kirby stones on it. And straight <laughs> away, the children gravitated to play Kirby, to play Hopscotch. So we always think that the outside area... You know, it should be all plants and well, it can, but actually being outside in urban spaces is also really important that children have that sense of place and connection to the school or setting that they go to. Thank you for that shift in perception for me. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> I like it. I'm one of those people that like, but finding that balance and really trying to honour those communities and trying to make those experience real. Um, and yeah, one, of, one of the traps is to try to teach children through the intangible. So we're going to learn about this thing and I'm going to talk to you about it or you're going to watch it on a screen. And it's not a part of your relationship with the world or idea or place because there's no experience connected to it. You can't mm -hmm. feel it, That's taste it, smell it, anything. This is a question I've come asked many, many guests and it was always interesting insight. How do we honor nostalgia and move beyond nostalgia in the context of valuing natural environments as a child. Expand what you mean a little bit by the nostalgia. So when we ask a parent to like, oh, it's about, you know, creating these experiences that you had as a child and the parent can go, oh, oh. yeah, I really enjoyed that. But then going beyond that and to elevate it as necessary, not just nostalgic, how do you jump over that void? Because that's a challenge I come up against all the time. And so many educators, when trying to convert their space into authentic childhood experiences and removing the swings, mm -hmm. removing the slide, mm -hmm. and they get pushed back mm -hmm. and we try to say, well, mm -hmm. it's based on a real experience. And the parents go, oh, yeah. It's always a button at the end. Yeah, but I love the slide. I love the swing. I think um, it's a tough one, actually, because what, what people do, I think, when they're using terms like that, when um, people are asking, you know, go back in time and tell me, what yeah. you're trying to do is to create that emotional link between yeah. the here and now and the back then. And I think sometimes what we've got to do is, is to actually say, um, you know, you were the child that got to go on the swing. So you were obviously maybe a little bit more confident 
but there was somebody who was looking from the side who never got to go on the swing. Um, you know, when you look at the, the, the idea of slides, they fascinate me because many people go, oh, yes, I remember um, the slides, yes. And um, it was all about going down. And I'm like, but actually, I would argue one of the greatest challenges is going up a slide, walking up it or going down it backwards. So, so when we look at nostalgia, and, and I think it's a good starting point because it helps people realize emotion, but it's about making sure that we're not holding on to old baggage and that we can move forward in terms of our understandings now. Because, you know, when you think about some of the stuff I did as a young child, there wasn't any real research into neural connections in my brain. There wasn't anything like that. And yeah. so the world is constantly innovating. We're, we're, um, we know more about the natural world now than we ever have. We're just not in it as much as we should be. So, so I think sometimes it's about using that nostalgia to start the conversation and then building forward to say, all right, this is where we are here and now, but actually moving forward, we'd like our children to be this because the children we're working with now are going to be the leaders of the future. So if they don't feel the passion and connection to the natural world that some of those parents might have actually found just by the amount of time they spent outside, we have to, to almost help people understand that we've got reduced time outside. So we, we need to be really thinking about what those experiences are that children have. And I love going down a slide and, and I love going on a swing. But when you look at their impact in terms of the space they take up, when you look at the impact they have on a few children, um, whereas the benefits for a really integrated natural environment, yeah, you've got to weigh it all up. Mm. Um, in your experience traveling the world, what do you see as those universal needs for children so they can thrive in their development? Hmm. I think um, beyond the basic, um, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms mm. of food yeah. and water and things like that. I think um, it's in terms of the, the environment, I talk a lot about the four elements. So I talk a lot about earth and fire, air and water. And, and I do that through curriculum and I do that through everything really now because we can, we can take the idea that children need light um, and so when we talk about the sun, obviously, um, and fire, that's fire is the element. And so we've got sun, we've got sunlight, we've got shadows, we've got... So really, if you just said they need exposure to those four elements and they need a companion, they need somebody to walk alongside them. So if you take four elements and a, and a caring, not necessarily always an adult, but a caring partner in that yeah. process, um, I think those are the things that we just need to make sure that if they're provided then children will bring to it their embedded understanding, their desire to risk take, their desire to be curious and fascinated by the natural world around them. On that note, Claire Warden, <laughs> after dropping so much wisdom on us, making me feel super inspired, I'm sure all our listeners are as well. Isaac's over in the studio here nodding his head as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I feel so fortunate to sit down and have this conversation. I've got to look at myself in the mirror a bit after this conversation as well. So challenging my growth. Um, so what can I say except thank you so, so much.
Well, it's been an absolute delight to chat to you anytime. Yeah, keep in touch. I'll hold you to Bye, that. Bye, everybody. Um, and also, <laughs> we're going to put in the show notes, we have claire-warden.com, um, Mind Stretchers Academy, infinite number of courses, um, resources to leverage and get the most for the children in your lives, helping them flourish. Also, virtual nature schools, the list goes on. Please head over to Facebook right this instant, International Association of Nature Pedagogy. I'm on that page, great articles, no spammy stuff, amazing content. Claire Warden, you're amazing. Keep up the good work. And I'm going to hold you to keeping in touch because we're going to talk. We haven't yeah. even spoken about floor books. <laughs> oh, we haven't. No, we haven't actually talked about that at all. That's really funny, isn't it? Next time, Next no time. problem at all. Thank you so <laughs> Take much. Take care. Thanks so Chat much. Soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. That was the inspiring, hardest working lady in nature pedagogy, the amazing Claire Warden. Please follow her at claire-warden.com. All the notes and references during this podcast will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us and look forward to you joining us again soon.